good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Excursions Unlimited. We're talking telescope drama. And we're talking present number one. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking a woman with an unusual fear of being raped by dwarves. Oh my god, I do love that Lee has a, an unconventional sense of humor, shall we say, but there are a couple of lines where I'm like, ooh, this does not work in the year of our Lord 2022. But it did work in the year of our Lord 1978 on television. <laughs> On television. The things you can get away with on television, Trace. Exactly. Uh, Everyone, we are discussing um, Someone's Watching Me, uh, directed and written by John Carpenter, but not named Uh John Carpenter Someone's Watching Me, because that didn't exist yet. Indeed. And also, you did not put enough emphasis on the exclamation mark, sir. (laughs) Okay, isn't it funny, though? Because what what, months ago when we did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we were like, oh, yeah, you can't have a question mark at the end of your title. But Mm -hmm. I don't know what the rule is on exclamation points. Uh, Well, we're we're in TV, as we said, so maybe it's a whole different set of rules. No, I'm sorry. Let me do it in like the Camilla Bell, uh, uh, When a Stranger Calls voice. Someone's watching me. (laughs) Wait, are you sure you're not just doing Paz de la Herda in Nurse? (laughs) Someone's watching me. Nevertheless, actually, I'm a little shocked, Joe, that we didn't program this in June when we covered Chloe Okuno's Watcher on our Patreon, because this would have been a really good companion piece. This is true. Yeah, they do feel almost like symbiotic to one another, right? And of course, folks, you can go back and listen to that Patreon episode because it's a banger. We really like that movie. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to watch this as almost a prototype for what we start to get in later films about stalking. Well, and that's what's so interesting, right? Because this was on TV. This didn't go to theaters. And I mean, well, we can talk about how brilliant John Carpenter is at writing characters, specifically female characters. And we'll probably mm-hmm. talk about that a bit in this episode. But yeah, that we're dealing with something like this. And again, a, a, a movie that aired once, maybe twice, on NBC and was considered a lost film of Carpenter's for decades because you couldn't find this movie on any kind of home video format. Yeah, I have a fascination with things like made-for-TV movies. Like, I can't remember if we talked about it here or if I talked about it on my side podcast, White Ladies in Crisis, because mm-hmm. we covered, like, Hallmark movies and Lifetime movies every once in a while on right. that. and. The reality is, is like, they're kind of the same, but they're also not the same at all. Like the structure and the writing style and the acting and obviously the budget and that kind of stuff feels like they're kind of a weird cousin to a traditional Hollywood theatrical film. Well, and here's the thing. And so I... I, I... I want. I have the Screen Factory Blu-ray of this movie, and I, 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 there were a ton of special features. It's like an interview with Adrian Barbeau, an interview with Charles Cyphers. They're each like mm-hmm. ten minutes long. 
But the only other major special feature is an audio commentary with author Amanda Reyes, who wrote the book Are You in the House Alone? A TV movie compendium, 1964 to 1999. And yeah, because these were bread and butter. <laughs> very much so. And I wasn't going to watch this commentary because I was like, eh, it's not Carpenter. Like, what do I care? <laughs> I fully remember you saying this to me earlier this week. You were like, I don't know who this is. I'm not re- I'm not listening to that. Well, and so the funny, I just put it on today because I was working from home. And honestly, there's a lot. I never thought, oh, right. Like, you know, a person who's written a book is doing a commentary and, and not the creator. But like, it, I found some like really nice insights from this woman on this commentary that I will hopefully bring into the episode today. Okay. Okay. But, okay, so before, why don't we just start with that? So I'm going to start really kind of far out there, Joe, but I need you to bear with me because it will all come back to Someone's Watching Me, okay? I'm ready. So, the man who got Someone's Watching Me for NBC is a man by the name of Fred Silverman. And that man was president of NBC at the time. Uh, Actually, he had just been made president. So I'm going to dive into this man for a bit. So in grad school, Silverman's 406-page master's thesis. Oh, my God. God, no. <laughs> no. It analyzed 10 years worth of ABC programming. And this would have been like in the 60s, by the way. Okay, okay. This led to his hiring at WGN-TV in Chicago, which was followed by positions at WPIX in New York, and then at CBS. And his first job at CBS was to oversee the network's daytime programming. So right. In 1970, he was promoted from Vice President of Program Planning and Development to Vice President of programs. So what he did there was he head of the entire program department at CBS, and he was promoted primarily to bring a change in perspective to the network, as it had just forced out the previous executive in that position, Michael Dan. And Dan's philosophy was to draw as many viewers as possible without regard to T-demographics, which the network found to be unacceptable. Yeah, that definitely wouldn't fly nowadays. No, and th- but again, we're talking the early days of demographic targeting, and so <laughs> the reason they thought that was unacceptable is because by this point, advertisers had become more specific about what kind of audiences they were aiming for. And I find this really interesting because, again, they didn't have to care about this before. They were just like, oh, let's just like cast a wide net. Yeah, it's like put as much on as you can. Exactly. And I find it interesting because, as some people may know, I work in print media. And mm-hmm. it's something where, you know, we obviously when I came on, they'd already started advertising and online, social media, whatever, but they haven't really kind of nailed like the transition. And so it's right. similar to that, right? Like, oh, but also because with online advertising, you can look at demographics, you can mm-hmm. look at performance and you can't do that in print media. So, okay. Advertisers were becoming more specific about what kind of audience they were aiming for. And so to boost viewership and demographics that were believed to be more willing to respond to commercials, Silverman orchestrated the rural purge of 1971. And this is the thing that's so important that it even has its own Wikipedia entry. Oh, wow. Okay. The rural purge eventually eliminated many popular country-oriented shows. Shows like Green Acres, the Andy Griffith Show spinoff Mayberry RFD, Hee Haw and the Beverly Hillbillies, all of those were thrown out of the CBS schedule whenever Fred Silverman came on board. Wow. Okay. In their place, however, came a new wave of classics aimed at the upscale baby boomer generation, such as All in the Family, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, MASH, Kojak, The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour. <laughs> now, this is kind of unrelated, but I feel compelled to point it out, Joe. Okay. On Saturday mornings, Silverman commissioned Hanna-Barbera to produce oh, the God. cartoon series <laughs> Scooby-Doo, so Where Are You? <laughs> so you love this man because he is a, an integral part of your horror origin story. He, without this man, I would Scooby-Doo wouldn't exist. Or maybe it is, but maybe a different iteration. But anyway, right. 
the character of Fred Jones is named after Fred Silverman. Oh, wow. The success of Scooby-Doo led to several other Hanna-Barbera series airing on CBS in the early 70s. So, that's his tenure at CBS. In early 1974, Silverman ordered a mod spinoff titled Good Times, and that series' success led Silverman to schedule it against ABC's new hit Happy Days the following fall. But sidebar mod is a fantastic show. Okay, I'd heard of it, but I never watched it because the name mod just doesn't sound oh, sure. appealing yeah. to me. And I wasn't a Golden Girls watcher, so I wasn't familiar with B. Uh, Arthur. Hmm. So when I saw at the, this point in time, because Adrian Barbeau is in Someone's Watching Me, mm-hmm. she plays Maud's daughter. And I was like, oh, like, what is this? And then I go look it up and I'm like, oh, God, this is like a super left wing, like very progressive yeah. sitcom from the early 70s. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the fact that it's developed out of like a super conservative television show that's, you know, like all in the family. Yeah. It's kind of astounding, but also, yeah, like the show was just really fucking funny and very feminist. Like one of the first shows to tackle abortion. I, w- I wouldn't call All in the Family. Cons- I mean, Archie Bunker it, is conservative. It, yeah, yeah, that's that's a better way of putting it. Thank you. Yeah, no, you're good. All right, so that's 1974. You know, he's brought in to uh, make good times, uh, crush happy days. Okay. In 1975, Silverman then moves over to ABC. He is named mm-hmm. the president of ABC Entertainment, putting him in the ironic position of saving happy days, the very <laughs> show that good times have brought to the brink of cancellation. Oh, <laughs> uh, so ironic. And I imagine this is like, because television is a much smaller game at this point, right? Like there's probably only a couple of key stations or like studios, mm-hmm. right? So you would know all the players and you would know all the strategies. So yeah. how hilarious he's like oh shit now i got a jump sale and try to do this thing that i was trying to sink Great. exactly here's the thing though again happy days is almost gonna get canceled and then they bring him in mm-hmm. he succeeded in bringing happy days back to the top of the ratings wow <laughs> and generating a hit spinoff from that show which was laverne and shirley oh my god huge yeah and they also got another spinoff mork and mindy which is a huge ratings winner its first season but then tanked after that yeah so at ABC, Silverman also greenlit other popular series such as Charlie's Angels, Donnie and Marie, Three's Company, Eight is Enough, The Love Boat, Soap, Fantasy Island, Good Morning America, and the award-winning miniseries Roots. Jesus Christ, this guy's good. It's, I'm telling you. Also, um, during his time at ABC, he overhauled the network Saturday morning cartoon output, replacing it with content from Hanna-Barbera, <laughs> 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 including a continuation of Scooby-Doo, and I promise this is my last Scooby-Doo reference. <laughs> oh my God. Paolo. So, okay, now let's go to NBC. So, okay. although Silverman's tenure at ABC was very successful, he left to become president and CEO of NBC in 1978. Well, wow, that CEO gig means a lot more money, probably. Very much so. But here's, again, another funny thing. So after bringing on shows like Charlie's Angels and whatnot to ABC, he talked about, at NBC, his desire to bring more quality programming to the station, citing shows like Three's Company and Charlie's Angels as being beneath what NBC wanted. Ooh, wow. He's like getting all class sensitive, like, oh, no, we need to have more high sophistication shows. Well, because he was he was critiqued a lot for a lot of his work or a lot of the shows he brought on being escapist fair. And so I think he was trying I mean, to combat true. that. Yeah. Mm. So, in stark contrast with his tenures at CBS and ABC, his three-year tenure at NBC proved to be a difficult period, marked by several high-profile failures to the point where he nearly bankrupted NBC. 
Oh boy. Despite these failures, there were high points in his tenure. So this included the launch of successful comedies like Different Strokes and The Facts of Life. And mm-hmm. he also made the series commitments right before his 1981 departure to Cheers and St. Elsewhere, which would go on to premiere in 1982. All of this being said, Variety wrote an article criticizing some of his choices, specifically those of looking for more quality programming. The article's title was NBC's High Road is Filled with Potholes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, critics. Doing it for the SEO equivalent of, like, the late 70s and early 80s. All the way back in the day. But nevertheless, he is still responsible for someone's watching me. And I felt it necessary to just go through his history to show how he thought. So when TV first started being a big thing, you know, that advertisers could really come in, Mm -hmm. uh, the strongest demographic was women aged 18 to 49. Now, Joe, do you know why that might be? Uh, Disposable income? (laughs) <laughs> it's the housewives who are responsible for also buying the products to keep in the house. Ah, that does make sense. Okay. So advertisers wanted to put their stuff in shows and films that cater to them, which is why you started seeing more TV movies and shows centered around women and their issues. <laughs> their issues? Oh my god. Well, and because so, here's the other thing. So th- we're in the era of second wave feminism, and mm-hmm. we'll... While there isn't any sexual assault or rape explicitly in Someone's Watching Me, there have been arguments made that just the idea of, again, this watcher figure, it's a rape of the mind. Because what the second wave feminists were trying to do was to try to convince everyone, hey, rape is not sex, rape is about power. Oh, sure. Yeah, and Sophie literally says the word rape in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm, absolutely. And John Carpenter knew that because he was no stranger to feminists. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. Anyway, um, again, important to note, again, TV movies only aired once, maybe twice if you were lucky. So the ads for Someone's Watching Me were emphasizing, you know, how you had to be there to watch it. Uh, You know, and there's that whole thing. So... Stepping away from Silverman for a bit, just to go into the production of this movie, because it didn't start as a TV movie. The film had the working title High Rise, and Carpenter was hired by Warner Brothers in 1976 to write a feature script based on a true story about a woman in Chicago. So this, I'm surprised they didn't have that on the the marketing, right, based on a true story, but nevertheless. He spent three months writing it and handed it in, with the idea that it was going to theaters. Eight months later, Warners contacted him saying they wanted to do it as a TV movie and offered him the chance to direct it. Well, involved in all this is Fred Silverman somehow, who nabbed it for NBC. Oh, yeah. So, shooting took place in April of 1978. It lasted for either 10 days or 18 days. It depends on who you ask and which interview you see. (laughs) It's kind of a big difference in terms of shooting length. It's weird. So, in Barbeau's interview on this Blu-ray, she says 10 days. Um, But in another interview that you can find, she says 18. Carpenter also goes back and forth. And so... Hmm. 18 days seems to be the norm for a TV movie, so let's go with that. Yeah. My hunch is that Barbeau was only required to be filming for 10 days, which is why she thinks 10 days. And she's really not in the movie as much as we might have hoped, so that would make sense, yeah. Well, I mean, also, okay, whether it be 10 days or 18 days, Joe, do you think you could remember everything about a job you did for up to 18 days in 1978? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, before I was conceived, I definitely worked (laughs) a 10-day job at, like, a Home Depot. Oh, my God. So, okay, Carpenter did have some control over the film, but he either didn't have time for coverage or he didn't want to do any coverage so that he could just give the producers the dailies and get them okayed. Sure. I should point out that this was Carpenter's first union experience. Uh, he had previously only directed 1974's Dark Star, which um, was pretty much filmed in a garage, and mm. 1976's Assault on Precinct 13. But it did allow Carpenter to get into the Director's Guild and, again, teach him his union habits. 
There we go. Regarding production, so again, this is April of 78. Two weeks after this movie wraps, Carpenter spent the entirety of the next month, May of 1978, shooting Halloween. Never heard of it. <laughs> Just a tiny little movie, right? So right. Yeah. <laughs> he's on record saying that many of the techniques he used in Halloween, he devised while filming Someone's Watching Me. And I tried to keep an eye out for this while we were, you know, watching the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. The biggest one I could see is the at the climax at the very end when Lee walks into her apartment, the lights are all out. And... Mm-hmm. He does his thing where he just shows all the empty rooms, just like how the end of Halloween has Michael, you know, his POV looking at all the different spots in Haddonfield. Right. Yeah. But nevertheless, I mean, again, y'all watch it. See if you can find some more out. But uh, Carpenter later said that he was very proud of this film, even though it was not one of his better known works. And I didn't like there is not a ton of interesting information about the casting. But I did want to point out, you know, we said Adrian Barbeau's casting came about because Carpenter had seen her as B. Arthur's daughter on Maud. He was also familiar with her work as Rizzo in the original Broadway cast for Grease. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that either. <laughs> Good for her. I mean, big shocker. Fucking Adrian Barbeau is amazing and big surprise. I mean, originating the role of Rizzo. Like, who who would have mm-hmm. thought? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are like, duh, Trace, that's duh, literally... you like- idiots, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Joe, of course, we all probably know her best as the voice of Simone Lenoir in Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, right? you said you were done you said you were done and then you were not done and now i'm walking away nevertheless uh barbo and carpenter would get married the following year in 1979 and stay married until the divorce in 1984 oh gosh i also forgot that he married her they have a kid i know so someone's watching me premiered on nbc on november 29th 1978 the last day of november sweeps um are are sweeps Mm. a thing anymore they're not a thing anymore because we've moved to like a full year television cycle. But like even probably back in like the 2010s, uh, February sweeps, November sweeps, still a big deal for advertising. Do you want to tell some of maybe our younger listeners what that what a sweep is? <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's a month long period where television advertisers would take note of like how shows on a particular network were performing and they would use those figures to sell advertising rates for the rest of the year. So like you needed major events, which is why you would get stuff like, oh, Grey's Anatomy is going to be doing a 200th episode and we're also killing off half the cast in a helicopter crash. It's oh like, my God. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and we save that four sweeps so that we goose the numbers and therefore we can charge advertisers higher rates throughout like deader months. February sweeps. So it's November and February or is it May? Mm-hmm. No, uh, November and February. Got it. No, because February is also the, the Valentine's episode where Carter and Lucy get stabbed in the R. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, if y'all were not alive for that, I, uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah. That's what got me into ER was that stabbing episode. <laughs> oh, man. For some people, that's like one of their most traumatic memories of that show. It's horrifying. Poor Lucy. It is horrifying. Yeah. Poor Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so ratings wise, Someone's Watching Me came in at number 218 out of 314 made for TV movies and specials. So we did not do well in that 1978-79 yeah. That number's not impressive. <laughs> okay. But here's some perspective, Joe. It okay. got a 14.4 over 22. And what this means. Wow. <laughs> 14.4 million homes were watching Someone's Watching Me, and those 14.4 million homes represented 22% of the television viewing audience. 
Yeah. Again, like the competition across the different networks was not as heavy because there, you know, there wasn't streaming. There wasn't 600 plus channels, but still like you see numbers like that and they're really impressive. Well, not back then, but you know, today The Walking Dead gets like 10, well, I'm sorry, not today, maybe like five years ago. The -hmm. Walking Dead gets like 10 million views and that's, that's almost unheard of for a television show. Yeah, because we've like fractured the viewing audience into a million different pieces. So basically no one is ever watching the same thing as other people at the same time, unless it's some kind of major event. Like think of when we all watched Malignant on the same right drop date. Like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff is rare nowadays, but it used to happen a lot more frequently back in. Oh, God, I was about to say the old times. <laughs> <laughs> Well, nevertheless, 14.4 million homes watching someone's watching me was considered a failure. So (laughs) there we go. Reviews were generally positive for the film. I mean, again, I'm sure we're all grading on a for a TV movie scale. Mm -hmm. Carpenter was nominated for the 1979 Edgar Award of Best Television Feature or Miniseries. I'm not sure if he won, but since Wikipedia just says he was nominated, I'm going to take it for more than he did not not. win that award. (laughs) Yeah. But um, but yeah, so so that is kind of I I literally was like, I mean, Joe, what did I tell you earlier this week? Where I was like, I'm not going to have much of a production history, but then mm-hmm. I found it. There we go. <laughs> and and here's the thing, folks. So if you listen to this and you were like, wow, that's a lot of preamble for a TV movie, it's because there's often a hidden side to Hollywood, like the way that things come together. And also, we wanted to make sure that we were doing this right because we have never covered a made-for-TV movie before. We've never, covered never. a DTV movie in Mirror Mirror, but you know, there's often hidden production histories that are worth highlighting because they are different than when they go theatrical. Well, and it's so, again, like I, this Amanda Reyes who wrote this book on TV movies, I was like, that's a really niche area to devote <laughs> your mm-hmm. life to. But again, it's like listening to her talk about it, I was like, oh shit, like there's some really, because there's a whole thing where she's like, you know, TV movies were able to do something that theatrical movies couldn't because again, oh, yeah. the theatrical market, they're primarily targeting men because they're the <laughs> ones that are going out and buying the tickets and seeing the movie. I mean, again, like that's what they think. Right. And don't forget, I don't think that TV is the purview of places like the MPAA. Exactly. And so again, you have a medium television, which is considered a quote unquote woman's market. So they right. actually have film films and TV shows that are specifically geared towards them. And that means also if you're writing for a TV movie like Carpenter was, you I mean, you, why are you going to write stupid women in your movie, right? Like mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're showing if you're marketing towards women, do that. And so that's why a big part of the reason why this movie, again, is considered to be one of uh, uh, one of the better TV movies of this of the 70s. Right. I mean, I I can't confess to having seen a bunch of them, but like my sister and I have watched a bunch of really shitty Lifetime movies in the 90s. And I'm not making disparaging remarks because there's absolutely an audience for that. And if that's what you're looking for, then it's giving you what you want. And there is also good quality Lifetime, Hallmark, whatever. So sorry, now I sound like I'm being No, you're fine. Just to say, like, there is a market for these things, but also some of them are still better done than others. And watching someone's watching me was like, oh, wow, this is kind of feminist as fuck. It's interesting to see this career woman be unapologetic about her aspirations. Also, she's spending off ogres this entire movie. Like, the movie's interest in sexual politics was fascinating to me. And we're going to talk about a little bit about why and how stalking comes to be a thing as we move through the episode but like 
again, the year this comes out is like, we were not really having these kinds of discussions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, because we'll call Leah final girl in this scenario. But again, that that, mm-hmm. co- that term wouldn't really be coined for a while until, you know, Carol Clover wrote her infamous book, Men, Women and Chainsaws. But part of the final girl trope is that, you know, she starts off mousy, meek, whatever. Mm-hmm. And she gets stronger and better, for lack of a better term, as she starts to take on more masculine and male attributes to go after the killer. Right. That is not the case with this movie, Joe. No. This movie takes the final girl trope, which again doesn't exist at this point, but it ignores that and she is strong from the get-go. She doesn't have to mm-hmm. go through a transformation because she's already there. So that in and of itself is a bit transcendent and subversive of something you would see in the horror genre. Yeah, and I'll confess the way this movie played, I fully thought that she was going to end up being a damsel in distress because I guess the other thing I didn't mention as I was watching the Hallmark and Lifetime movies with my sister in the 90s mm-hmm. is that a lot of those movies sort of do that traditional, oh, you know, it's a woman being stalked and she needs a hunky police officer to save her or, mm-hmm. you know, she needs a reporter to save her. Like, and sometimes she can end up saving herself, but women in danger as a subgenre as a a sort of thriller offset is very popular and i fully thought that in this movie it was going to be oh okay well paul's gonna have to break in and save her and i love the fact that lee ends up saving herself well and i was gonna say this for the very end when we get there but let me just tell you this lauren hutton did an interview with the austin american statesman which is actually my competitor for the from the austin chronicle by the way <laughs> Ooh, maybe you should jump over there sync them and then jump back to the chronicle oh my god right um so <laughs> anyway though she said she was unhappy with the ending that's in the film because she was actually supposed to according to the script have much more of a longer fight she was supposed to fight back but mm. the powers be that be at the network said it wouldn't be ladylike for her to fight Ugh. back Oh my god. So, isn't that hilarious? Given, again, everything we have just talked about with feminism, her fighting back was a step too far. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're also talking about a period of time when it's exclusively men who are making those decisions. Like, you don't have women CEOs in the late 70s. Exactly. And that's why, I mean, again, everyone, like, I, I do like this movie. I don't think it's a fantastic movie. I think it's, like, life-changing. Yeah, it's fun. It's fine. Given the time period, given that it is a TV movie, given that it is a man making this movie, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of really fascinating just things you wouldn't see at this time from something like this. So again, for that, I think it's historically significant, even if it may not mean the quality is like, you know, like a four star film. Yeah, like this is breezy. There were parts of it that I liked and other parts where I thought, "Eh, okay, you've kind of lost me. But Mm -hmm. overall, I mean, this is a a solid kind of, yeah, I'll just throw this on. It's a decent time. Yeah. So why don't we start talking about this movie again? Okay. So, we start off in New York City, we watch as the city fades from day to night, and then we see a man with a giant fucking telescope, and he is threatening a woman who we don't really see, but we hear her voice. This is Elizabeth, she is played by Lauren Hutton, and uh, he basically says like, I'm always gonna be with you, you're never gonna get rid of me, blah blah blah, and she's like, no, I'm getting out, you're not gonna be able to follow me, and then we get the credits. Wait, okay, so this... I I wasn't sure if this was meant to be her or not. I also did not know. I ended up resorting to the Wikipedia entry for this. The reason I'm suggesting it is is because Lee is an abbreviation of Elizabeth. Got it. Because we get the mention later where it's like, oh, yeah, there's been four women who died by suicide at other places this guy was Mm -hmm. monitoring. So I just assumed that was like his last victim. But that does make sense. And also, we never know, at least... 
Lee never vocalizes what exactly her history is outside of yeah man troubles. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, and I feel like it's deliberately written in that way where you could see it as, oh, she just had an issue with a man, or oh, she was being aggressively stalked by a man with a phallic telescope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so following the credits, we have Lee being shown apartment 4320 in Los Angeles's Arkham Tower, and she's getting this tour by Leon, who is played by James Murtaugh, and she's cracking jokes, she's wandering around, she's just kind of having a good time, like she's carefree, fancy-free. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like as an introduction to... Lauren Hutton's character like actually getting to see her and watch her negotiate this space which by the way is so 70s beige well, I was gonna say was, was, was this giving you like any house porn or apartment porn for you I mean the space is quite big mm -hmm. but I was mostly like oh I kind of miss the salmon coloring of looker <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's also oh my god where are they in that movie is it like Romania <laughs> in looker no oh, I'm so, oh look oh my god I'm sorry I was singing watcher oh my god <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yes. Um, also, plug everyone. Go read our article on Looker from a couple years ago because that movie is a treat. It's such a bananas nonsense. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, this apartment is it's interesting because it's not as ostentatious as I expected it mm -hmm. to be, but it is lovely. It's got a large balcony. It's got a giant living room space that she spends most of her time in. And you can tell that she's just excited by the prospect of something new. Well, and let's also get this off the table here. Lee is immediately not your typical woman that you would no. see in 1978. She's a single woman. She's working at a mm -hmm. at a television studio, no less. Yep. She is fun. She's sassy. She jokes a lot. She she has a lot of again characteristics you would typically see in male characters in films at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think normally if we saw a character like this she would be man hungry right or she would mm -hmm. have girlfriends or someone who would be telling her oh you need to settle down you need to get married and we don't really have that in this film like she is very much a career woman and i think we can chalk that up to that second wave feminism where women were starting to say no i want to have a career and maybe i'm not going to settle down immediately and if i get a piece of man it might be side candy or it might just be temporary well and also i mean like we haven't gotten to sophie yet but we will but like in another lesser version of this movie sophie would be like competing with her for a job or promotion oh, or something yes. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean i didn't check but i'm pretty sure this movie passes the bechdel test at some point <laughs> uh, i i think so even just in the conversations that sophie has around her sexuality because they're not talking about men <laughs> we'll talk about that soon <laughs> yeah Okay, so Lee ends up taking this apartment, and as she is unpacking, she's talking to herself about how she thinks it's going to be a great relationship between her and L.A., and unfortunately, this is when we then cut and we're seeing Lee from the telltale crosshairs of a telescope as uh, she is just kind of standing around on the balcony. So I know we can't do this now because we've already watched it. But it, listeners, if you're going to watch this movie after hearing this episode, always pay very special attention to whose gaze the camera is from. Because we have a lot of male gaze in this film, despite the fact mm -hmm. that it, it doesn't ever sexualize Lee. But... We do have a lot of the POV of the killer, and there are certain times where it will switch, and we will get the female gaze as it's Lee's POV, and that's always mm -hmm. by very specific intent on Carpenter's part. Yeah, I, I would say there is one moment when she is, well, I'd say there's two moments where she's sexualized, but we can talk about them as we go. Yeah. Okay, 
So we then watch Lee as she kind of talks herself up and goes over her resume. This is a very smart way to do exposition about her background so that we know she's looking for a job. We know that she has had issues with men in the past where she is already anticipating she's going to be hit on by the elderly uh, station manager. And then some. (laughs) She gets hit on by like 5,000 guys in this movie. Indeed. Oh my gosh, yeah. So she hops in the car and she's driving. We do see that someone appears to be following her, but we never really get a close look at them. And then we are at the TV station and she's being interviewed by station manager, Mr. Frenzen, who is played by John Mahone. And he more or less just dumps her into a trial by fire job situation. He's like, this is Sophie, played by Adrian Barbeau. That's Steve, played by Granger Hines. And you need to direct this live cooking show. Goodbye. Um, Also, are you a little bummed that after Steve's pass at her later, uh, we don't ever see him again for the rest of this movie? Okay, so I debated whether or not to bring this up now or later, but Uh one of my big issues with the film is that I feel like it's suggesting that we're going to know who the person watching her is. Like Mm -hmm. it's someone in her life and she just doesn't know. And Steve is very obviously a red herring. Mr. Frimson's kind of a red herring. Sophie could be considered a red herring. And I was a little bit annoyed that we spend time with some of this, like the sexual harassment parts. And then it doesn't really end up paying off except to create a culture where she is just constantly being surveyed by men. I think that's totally fair. Actually, this joins the ranks of movies like Watcher and like Knocking to me, where it's like, again, these women that are like experiencing things in their own apartments and things are going bad. But Mm -hmm. I always want them to go on for about five to ten minutes longer after the credits roll, because I feel like they just end because they just end. The threat's gone. We're good. No, 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 no. (laughs) I want to know more. (laughs) Well, I think it's also really dismissive of trauma like just because your assailant has been handled doesn't mean that you don't still have like a bunch of shit that you're going to need to deal with and i know that that's very 2022 of me but at the same time i i don't know i don't think that it's just satisfying to say oh well she killed the dude and now she's going to be fine you're like no she's still going to be hugely fucked up i mean i said this in watcher and y'all i'm sorry spoilers for watcher but like her killing the guy isn't my mm-hmm. end game. I want her no. to see I want to see how she talks to her husband afterwards. Right? And in this movie, I would love to see her go to Charles Cyphers and be like, here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like can she pursue a relationship with Paul after this because she has been totally fucked up by men. Look, the whole thing with this movie is well, uh, you know what? I'll save it till we get started to this talking because it okay. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so she ends up performing very well under pressure, and she gets this job. So Sophie takes her over to the office, and fucking Trace, I love this so much. Sophie sits her down, and she's like, just so you know, I'm a lesbian, but you're not my type. Well, okay, so the the, the way, the exact line exchange, you know, she's like, oh, like, you know, a man, like, fucked you up or whatever, but, like, PG rated. Mm -hmm. I I can see the look in your face, because I've seen it in my face in the mirror sometimes. And Lauren Hutton's like, oh, like, what was his name? And he goes, she's like, oh, her. Mm-hmm. And when Barbeau read that in the script, you know, she asked Carpenter because she, she actually assumed that he had taken it from his own personal life. She actually thought John Carpenter was gay. And that's why he wrote that line. Oh, wow. Okay. But he, he just told her, he was like, well, I'm not. But he goes, but if I was, this is how I would tell someone like discreetly or like, you know, cavalierly like, hey, by the way, I'm a homo. <laughs> And that's the thing that I love. Sophie is such a no nonsense character. She will say what's on her mind. And she does it so matter-of-factly that even in this scene, Lee looks at her, there's a beat where she kind of says, oh, 
but she doesn't say it out loud. And then we just move forward because that's what queer people want. It's like, you know what? I'm not quite like you, but I'm still a regular fucking human being. You don't need to treat me like I'm going to break or like I'm a weird object that's going to give you a rash. Well, and again, thank God I listened to this commentary because Reyes goes all in on the status of queer representation, or at least of lesbians in the 70s. And before I go in on that, I want to point out, though, so you as a viewer... As a queer viewer, doesn't it already make you like Lee so much more when you see oh, her reaction to Sophie's 100%. confession? 100%. Because I was clocking it. Yeah. I was looking to see, oh, is she going to say something and then take it back? Is she going to have to process it? And then like in five scenes, she'll be like, oh, Sophie, I'm actually fine with it. Yeah. No, she's fine with it almost immediately. Yeah. It's super great. And, and that's something too. I'm not saying like straight people can't understand that, but it's a thing where I'm like that... At this point, Lee can do no wrong for me. Yeah, <laughs> because she's a yeah. woman in 1978 who doesn't bat an eye at her new co-worker that she's sharing an office with telling her she's gay. Yeah, and she clearly also suffers no fools when it comes to men. So you're just like, wow, she's got her shit together. Oh, yeah, not at all. So, okay, l- let's go into what Reyes is saying here because, I, again, okay. I this is fascinating. So... In the 1970s, gay characters were just coming to the forefront of television, and it was kind of a mixed bag. Policewoman featured a trio of lesbian killers, and there was a Marcus Wilby episode titled The Outrage, which was coincidentally met with actual outrage by gay and lesbian groups because they portrayed a gay man as a child molester. Oh, but of course, yes. There were better written characters on sitcoms. So we had Billy Crystal's Jody on the sitcom Soap, which was a mm-hmm. spoof of soap operas. Which you just mentioned because that was one that Fred developed. There you go. Uh, and there was also Fred developing uh, All in the Family episodes. Uh, there's one which, actually, I had to watch this one in college. I have never seen All in the Family. Like, my TV land days growing up, like, I was watching The Brady Bunch. I was okay. watching Bewitched and I Dream of Genie. I didn't watch things like All in the Family or Happy Days or uh, Good Times or whatever the fuck. So shows with men, you were like, no, thank you. <laughs> nah, yeah, not really. But again, like, I don't know why I didn't watch The Golden Girls, but maybe that's because it was like a they hadn't really started putting like the 80s or like those 80s shows on TV lately. Right. Yeah, we were still firmly in the 70s when I was growing up. Okay, okay. Uh, but yeah, we had a few All in the Family episodes like this one where Archie misidentifies an effeminate man to be gay when he's actually his friend who's this renowned football player. There was also Three's Company, which sort of walked this line of embracing the stereotypical gay man so that a straight man could live with two women while also dismantling the stereotype by showing how inherently goofy that stereotype actually was. yeah. And they did this by presenting the way Mr. Roper would respond to Jack, uh, the uh, John Ritter character, with an ignorant joke because he believed he was gay, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too, because you get to have people identify with that character, but most people would be in on the joke and be like, no, but John Ritter's totally not gay, so. Hmm. Well, and that's, I mean, with All in the Family, like, I, I will confess, when I first watched this episode of All in the Family, it was like my introduction to film class, my f- sophomore year of college, and... I was so put off by this character that I was yeah. like, how was this such a... I mean, I knew why it would have been a big hit, but it took me a bit to realize, oh, but Archie's the butt of the joke in all of these scenarios. Yeah. Like, he's the voice of the majority, like, conservative generation, but the show is tackling that and saying, no, you're stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. In a way, it reminded me of the way that people treated like the Colbert show way, way, way later, where it's almost this is the character is a joke, like he's a farce. And yet you can see why certain people would take it at face value and misunderstand it. Exactly, exactly. So there was visibility on TV, but there was no one knew how to correctly handle gay characters, really. And it turns out that TV movies are the ones that were doing it better. <laughs> hey. 
There were some really interesting gay-themed entries, including the award-winning That Certain Summer, uh, which Reyes thinks is excellent, and starred Martin Sheen and Hal Holbrook in non-stereotypical gay roles. I think this was 1972. I've heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. There was the flawed but interesting In the Glitter Palace, which co-starred Chad Everett and Diana Scarwood. Diana Scarwood, yay! Yay! About a lesbian accused of committing a murder. Uh, it does have issues, but it uh, Reyes says it does its best trying to keep things frank and honest. Okay. But Reyes thinks that one of the most interesting gay characters from this era is Adrian Barbeau's Sophie, who is not only non-stereotypical, but it's mm-hmm. also like it's an afterthought that she's gay. In that way, it's a pretty progressive portrayal of someone who just happens to be gay instead of yeah. making their sexual preference that defining trait. And, you know, John Carpenter just understands female characters and writes them really well. But in general, Reyes thinks he just understands people and he gives them all something really unique and interesting for us to hold on to. That is interesting, right? Because I feel like whenever we have conversations about primarily Halloween mm-hmm. and Laurie Strode and her friends, people always want to talk about how John Carpenter writes women well, or they want to give credit to Deborah Hill, which I, I would say both arguments are correct, and you should probably mm-hmm. say them one after the other. But it's fascinating to me that, yeah, like John Carpenter, I think, is just really adept at making people interesting like he makes characters feel like they are three-dimensional even characters like sophie where we don't really know that much about her but we get the impression she has a rich interior life we just happen to only see that when she interacts with lee because of course this is lee's story and not hers exactly i will say though it's kind of ironic that reyes says you know oh it's sort of like a matter of fact representation because that's literally how we had this movie listed in our spreadsheet when we were trying to decide what to cover and it was like (laughs) adrian barbeau is uh like no big deal lesbian that's how we have it listed yep that's exactly it and Everyone, I mean, because I I, re- I know that a lot of y'all like to go out and like watch the movies that we cover if you haven't seen them, but I, I really would employ you go watch this because just for this role alone, even uh-huh. though it's, again, it's not a huge role in the film, Mm-mm. it's still very much worth seeing just for how important that is. Yeah, and it is, honestly, I watched this and I thought... They were getting this back in the late 70s, and there are still shows that are struggling to not just be like, I'm the queer character! Oh my god. Right? Right? Like, take a page from the John Carpenter handbook. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Okay, yeah, so we get this fantastic exchange, and then we get a quick prank phone call, but it's like, not certain what it is. It's kind of like, pick up the phone, something, hang it up, and then Steve comes in, and he just immediately starts hitting on Lee. And when she turns him down, he literally openly declares that he won't give up, even when she rejects him. It is so obnoxious. This character sucks. And I cannot believe that the one kill we get in this movie, outside mm-hmm. of the killer, it is not this man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that John Carpenter does a fantastic job of presenting these threats coming at Lee, and by extension, all women all the time like she talks about how she doesn't want to be hit on but she is expecting it before she even goes in to get the job and then she is hit on by this dude who she has met maybe 30 minutes earlier during a job interview and it's just like yeah this is the lived experience of women they have to put up with shitty fucking dudes all the time but it's so fun to watch lee turn all these men down and i mean we haven't talked about lauren hutton but lauren hutton is very charismatic in this role She's super great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Lee returns home and she finds that the apartment door is open. So she calls Mr. Leone to complain. 
And this is the first kind of big scare in the film. So in the background, as she's on the phone, we just see a man run by. It's terrifying. Like, I've seen this movie once before, and it's been years. And so I forgot. I didn't remember most of the movie. This shot, this is like pure Carpenter, right? This also feels kind of like Halloween. Yeah, because it's stuff happening in the background that if I had turned my head away to take a note or something, I might have missed this, if not for the sound of the door slamming. And... I'll confess I do get a little frustrated with Lee as the film goes on. She sometimes doesn't make smart decisions like I think the character would. And then this is the first instance of that where she knows that the door was open. She suspects something is ajar or amiss. And then she hears the door slam and she kind of casually just walks over, opens it, realizes there's nobody there, and then she's fine with it. And I'm like, no, ma'am, you think that someone was in here, you should take this more seriously. I, hey, okay, you would ping me in ahead of time that you were like, yeah, I find a lot of her decisions frustrating because it, see, it makes her look stupid when we are very well aware that she is not a stupid character. Mm-hmm. And I do, I, I'm not making excuses, but I, I'm okay. trying to figure out how much of this is 1978 mentality because you know, it's like right. a thing where it's like, oh, people didn't lock their doors in suburbs mm-hmm. because there was no threat. And so, Granted, yes. I mean, you hear your own door slam, like you should do something about that. Right. But I'm wondering how much rationalizing she's doing, because again, at this time, it's like, well, it doesn't have to be that dangerous because it hasn't before. However, if we are subscribing to the idea that she has been bothered by Herbert before, that she mm-hmm. was the call in the opening scene, that yeah. does make her look more stupid. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the easy write-offs of this is uh, to borrow a line from Jeffrey Craner of Random Horror Generator number nine. I always get their podcast name wrong. But <laughs> he frequently talks about whether or not characters behave as though they know that they are in a horror film. And I would say that Lee doesn't always act like she knows that she's in as much danger as she is. I will say too. I mean, I've hinted at my experience with talking on this podcast before, and it's it never obviously it never got to this point, and mm-hmm. it wasn't someone who lived in my city, so they weren't right. like stalking me that way. But it was still a point where I was like, I mean, like I never really called the cops because I was like, no, it's it's not going to get that bad, or it's all in my head, or it's mm. not really as bad as like I might right. be thinking it is, and so. I rationalized a lot to avoid having to take that extra step, and so I can right. see how a someone likely. If she, if this isn't the second time she's gone through this, might be going through the same uh, uh, thought process. Well, that's fair. Yeah, that's very, very fair. Because I mean, I think of the way that people put off medical maladies because we just yes. don't want to go to the doctor. And you would think, oh, well, if you feel like you're in danger, you would do something about it. But the reality is, is we don't want to be bothers to anybody. We don't want to go and maybe put ourselves out there and then have a police detective tell us oh i'm sorry your (laughs) your scarediness is not real because i can't actually do anything for you well also i mean okay actually if lee was the opening call in this movie Mm -hmm. it might make sense also because when we get into the stalking laws at the time she'd be well aware that there's not much she can do about this yeah that is true i mean again it's your it doesn't stop me from being like girl like do something i know right <laughs> but <laughs> i mean because we also know oh lee sweetie you're in a stalking movie yes like <laughs> there was a bed behind you we all saw it oh you didn't see it okay well exactly exactly <laughs> so anyway so okay so then we get some really great comedy so <laughs> she sets up her desk that night and she is just like working away on stuff and the phone starts ringing trace and it's motherfucking steve And Steve wants to keep asking her out, and she just keeps saying no and hanging up. (laughs) 
<laughs> when she fakes to be an answering service and she like tells him the time and she's mm-hmm. like, no date, but at least you know what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> Get like, him. How do you not love this character after these kinds of interactions, right? Uh, she's so fun. She's so she's fun. Very fun. And then, of course, we get a little bit of a directorial flourish when the camera just sort of gently tilts down. And there under the desk that she has been sitting in front of is a mic, right? She's been bugged. So that's what the guy was doing when she came home. And this is something, too, where I'm like, oh, because it takes her a very long time to figure out that, A, that he can see her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and B, yeah, that, that she's being bugged. And again, I chalked that up to 1978, where it's like, okay, but like, how common would this have been? Like, would you ever even think that someone is bugging your house? Right. Yeah. Because you you would default assume, well, people would have to get in here. And the technology, like, even when she finds it later in the film, it takes her a while to read through and be like, oh, this this is recording. This is sound recording equipment. Like, Mm -hmm. whereas you and I look at it and we're like, yes, we'd even. That's a bug. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So sometime later, Sophie and Lee are coming back with groceries, and this is when Sophie reveals that she's been offered a job in Fort Worth. Chekhov's job in Fort Worth. <laughs> like, do, do you know where Fort Worth is? I do not. Okay, it, it, it's in Texas. It's like about 45 minutes west of Dallas, Texas. Okay. And that's a boo? <laughs> I, I ju- I'm just like, you're gonna move from, I mean, look, I, I don't want to live in LA because I think I get eaten alive there, but like... Sophie seems like she's doing okay. And so she wants to move mm-hmm. from LA to Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> just right. like, oh, and she's a lesbian. I was going to say, Sophie, what's the lesbian situation in Fort Worth in 1978? Maybe John Carpenter had a trip to Fort Worth once and he was like, man, there's a lot of lesbians here. <laughs> it's like, lesbian capital. Who knew? Fort uh, Worth. <laughs> Fort Worthians, let me know, please. There we go. All right, so uh, in the apartment, Lee gets a, she's also grabbed the mail, so she opens up this letter, and it is from Excursions Unlimited, and they are offering her a free European vacation, but in order to choose the destination, they will first send her a series of free gifts, and holy shit, I was like, oh my god, (laughs) this is a scam from day one. Sophie doesn't seem to think so. She's like, oh my god, a European vacation for free? I'm like, girl. (laughs) <laughs> you don't get free European vacations. And we do see these today, right? Like, I mean, how many of these kind of spam emails do you get on a daily basis, right? And this, this is just the way how they did it in the 70s. They sent you letters and packages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, just in case you didn't think that Lee had her head screwed on straight, she reads this letter and she calls it strange garbage. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yep, she's clocked this immediately. There we go. So she's looking at the letter again later on when the lights start to flicker. And she mm-hmm. she's suspicious, but she doesn't read too, too much into it. But she also does leave the house immediately. She goes to Club Marcus so that she can have a drink and she has to fend off men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, then she, you know, instigates a meet cute with Paul Winkless, who was played by David Barney. And yeah, this is where we get your line about being afraid of being raped by dwarves, which is just the weirdest thing you could say to someone you've 
only just met. Also love that we have a woman joking about rape, by the way. Oof. In a film about stalking. In a film about stalking. <laughs> so also, uh, here's one of our very first switches in the ga- male gaze, because when she starts walking towards Paul, mm-hmm. we are getting a POV shot from Lee herself. So we have the female gaze in this scene. As she pursues a man, a man doesn't pursue her. Right. I do want to read this bit too. Again, this is from Reyes as well. But she meant, she says... The strong portrayals, uh, I'm sorry, and this is kind of about the feminist ideals uh, that the film puts forward, but she says, the strong portrayals of Lee and Soapy are sort of trying to be a resistance to the panopticon gaze. And the panopticon gaze is the idea of a silent, unknown overseer in the society, like a government that subconsciously controls all aspects of life. So 1984. Um, The term comes from a prison experiment where you'd have all the prisoners like on a circular lower level and a tower in the middle. Mm -hmm. So they just never knew when they were being watched since they couldn't see the guards. Right. Lee and Sophie are two women who reside outside of the cultural norms that have been set up by society. So when Lee meets Paul, he guesses that she works in the fashion industry because he looks her up and down and is like, oh, you're a woman of means and you clearly are important you must work in fashion because you're a woman right he's unintentionally stereotyped her and put her in that box and then sophie actually totally defies the cultural norms by being an openly gay woman so right going back to second wave feminism this movie can be seen as an example of that how second wave feminists were creating this sort of tension between how we were envisioning the way women should be and this sort of feminine resistance to that to that panoptic gaze it's why the stalker is motivated to destroy women likely. Dependent women who choose their own suitors and their careers live outside these rules that have been set for them. So yeah, I love that that is, you can get those readings from this movie. Oh, absolutely. Like, this is very much women who are in control and have agency are fucking scary to men. And the first thing that men can do is like, okay, I need to sexualize you. I need to make you scared and or humiliate you and possibly rape or kill you. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, let's have a fun date with Paul because Carpenter puts us at ease as we go through their, their walk down the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, it's really lovely. We just get this long take. The actors get to do their thing. Again, this is a bit of exposition, so we get a better sense of who Lee is. You know, we she talks about her appendectomy. She talks about her relationship with her mom. We learn that he is a philosophy professor at USC, and it's just kind of lovely. They have a, a lovely chemistry. They're very easygoing. And then she smooches him goodbye. We, of course, see the POV from the stalker's point of view. They're hiding literally in the bushes. So that's also, I mean, you can see some Halloween in here as well. Yeah. But again, we have this long ass scene, this exposition scene that you were talking about. That again, as the audience, we're like, okay, cool. Like, I mean, if you were scared by this movie, you're at ease. It's like, cool. Nothing bad can happen here because she's mm-hmm. with a man on the sidewalk in public. And then, oops, then we get this POV shot and we're like, fuck. Yeah. So he ends up bidding her, well, he wants to spend the night with her. And she's like, no, we're not going to do that. And he's like, oh, are you sure? And she's like, no, we're not going to do that. So she gets into her car and then she realizes, oh, shit, I didn't really give him my number, though. So she tries to chase after him and he's already gone. So all of a sudden now our guard is back up and Carpenter does a really good job of lighting here. Well, it's Carpenter and his team because I'm sure he had (laughs) people working the lights. Yeah, we get this like bar of light across Lee's face and the score starts to kick up. So it's like an immediate shift. It was cutesy rom-com and now all of a sudden shit we're back into thriller scary territory Mm -hmm. 
And then eh, you kind of get like a jump scare, but it's not that great because it's just some guy who's like, hey, can you help so, me? And she's like, uh, no. And she drives off. That, that, yeah, that jump scares a bit more like, you know, we've seen that a million it's times before. Yeah. I, but I actually like the one before. It's not really a jump scare, but it's right before she opens the car door, we see his face in the mirror and then mm-hmm. she opens it and it goes away. And so I, that, that was actually a really good one. But then, yeah, then it's followed up with she gets in the car, shuts the door. Boo, there he is. Yeah. Okay, so we fade in on Arkham Towers, presumably the next day or maybe a couple days later, and we see that the first of her Excursions Unlimited packages have arrived. So I love to this delay because you see a box, it's wrapped up. I want to know what the fuck is in it because I know that Excursions Unlimited is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Lee goes into the kitchen, she gets a glass of wine, she takes off her shoes, she curls up on the couch, then she opens the motherfucking box. Well, I, I was watching this and I was like, have I been coming home from work wrong my entire life? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> clearly I need to go home, I need to wear whatever this fucking red, f- ugly pattern, f- ruffled shoulder thing is that she's wearing mm-hmm. that's kind of a vest, but kind of not. Yeah. Go get my glass of wine, light a cigarette, and just sit back and relax. Like, that's how I need to end my days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I love to, she doesn't even get to open it before the phone rings and the dude is like, present number one. <laughs> and then she's and like, you're just right. like, how do you not realize you are being watched? I mean, well, so the other thing is this. So apparently at the time, crank phone calls were actually a very common sure. trope in horror films. Because again, that's that's an easy way to scare people. So mm-hmm. I just wonder, like, because obviously also crank calls were common, be, be they threatening or not in day-to-day life with these landlines mm-hmm. so i just also wonder if she's kind of like oh whatever like this ha- this is common this happens right. all the time i have a phone people will call me some of them are not going to be doing it because they actually want to talk to me exactly so she opens this gift she has been gifted a telescope it's not as good or as phallic as the one that we've seen the stalker use but uh it'll still do um it's also probably expensive as fuck so honestly good gift Indeed, yeah. Telescopes are not cheap on the best of days, so. Uh, Okay, yeah, and she also gets another phone call about her air conditioning right before she goes to bed. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so the next day, we get present number two, and this is delivered by Dorman Charlie, who is played by Edgar Justice, and I was trying to clock the Dorman, because there's a scene later where she goes to pick up the mail, and the Dorman isn't at the desk, and I was like, ooh, maybe it's the Dorman. Yeah. It's not the Dorman. (laughs) So so you were really hoping this was going to be someone we knew. (laughs) I 100%, yeah. I I wanted a reveal, and this movie is just like, no, it's a dude. Unfortunately, we are not in the era of reveals with our Who done it yet yeah i guess not so this one i found really creepy like a telescope is kind of okay now you can be a stalker slash a voyeur as well there's not a lot of ways you can misread getting a bikini from someone and then the phone call that accompanies it is i hope it fits this is definitely the one though where it's like um like (laughs) this is (laughs) not going on and you better go (laughs) I mean, she obviously reacts badly because on her date with Paul that night, she has made him a frankly shitty looking meal. And it clearly tastes badly because he is trying to cover for it. Yeah. But yeah, this is where we get a little bit more of her backstory. She insinuates that there's a long story about a man in New York. And 
that as much recognition as we maybe get that she was the woman from the opening scene. See, though, that's the only thing. So I'm actually going to say I don't think she's the woman from the opening scene because if she was in New York, Mm -hmm. I think the speech we get later is like he's managing buildings in this area. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't have time to be in New York doing this and then follow her to LA. Yeah, I also thought that that was weird because especially if you tie in, oh, there were four other women, it seems more likely that, yeah, she is just a new victim. But if not, then I'm like, well, why do we start the film in New York? <sighs> yeah. It's I just, it, it's one of those things where I think, I don't know that John Carpenter thought it through all the way. Yeah, it might be a plot hole. Yeah. Anyway, so she is also unabashedly frank and saying it's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit slow to warm up to men in terms of like Ugh. physicality. I love what a great conversation too. Like I mean, like, like it's sad for her, but like mm-hmm. again, this frankness that I'm just like, oh, good. Like I just like I don't see this very often. Again, even right? in movies today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Instead, normally we would get a scene of Paul drinking with his buddies, and they'd be like, "So have you fucked her yet?" And he'd be like, <laughs> "No, she's just a little frigid, guys. Just a li- she's a little." frigid we a wee bit frigid <laughs> mm-hmm. oh well you just gotta warm her up if you know what i'm saying oh you know what that's what steve would say <laughs> oh my god what's the movie oh my god all cheerleaders die oh yeah like that cold cold refrigerator <laughs> oh my god yes previous episode previous episode uh okay so he ends up leaving and she gets in her own head and again like i love that we're still doing this i don't always love it when characters talk to themselves because i do sometimes find it artificial but hers like her inner monologue is very endearing so when she's like oh you fucked this up to her reflection you're like yeah i've done that i think too because we have a scene earlier where she sings to herself not unlike what laurie strode does in halloween Mm -hmm. so i think that also kind of if you were going to be bothered by something like that which i agree with you i also have similar issues because it just feels like a lazy way to get exposition out yeah or like i'm thinking of fantasy island when maggie q is like i have to find the 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 fire extinguisher it's like yes bitch we know oh my god (laughs) see that's how you know fred was not involved on that version of fantasy island no he would have never done that But I think uh, having her sing to herself is kind of his way to be like, oh, look, like she does this. So mm-hmm. it's not too far out of reach. She's also going to talk to herself later. <laughs> exactly. So the stalker does also call her to wish her a good night. And he references her by name, which could be scary. But also you have to imagine people's phone numbers are listed in the telephone directory. So yes. he would know her name if he was calling her. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have Divine here to rip up the telephone directory in front of a crowd of innocent bystanders. <laughs> no, no, we do not. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to her episode on female trouble, everybody. <laughs> right. All right. So Paul has taken her concern seriously because... Again, time is a bit liminal in this. We never know if it's the next day or if it's been a couple of days, whatever. Uh, The next time we see Paul, he reveals that he has been digging into Excursions Unlimited, and he says that it doesn't exist, and he wants her to call the police. So she then has dinner with Sophie that night, and she is distracted enough that Sophie actually addresses it. And we learn that Lee has not been sleeping very much as a result of all of this. That's one sidebar. But this is where we get the really great stuff where Sophie wonders if maybe her distance has something to do with her preference, as in Sophie's preference for women. And what does she say, Joe? What is her reply to this, which is brilliant? So I'm I'm paraphrasing. Feel free to correct me if you've got the exact words. But mm-hmm. Lee basically says it doesn't bother her to be around men who do that to her all the time. So why should Sophie bother her? 
Yep. Uh, I'm with men all the time and they don't threaten me, so why should you? Which is like a little bit of a weird thing. I mean, I think Sophie is worried that Lee is misinterpreting their friendship and she just wants to make sure like, hey, I told you you're not really my type. I want to clarify that's still true. So in a way, I'm like, well, Lee, she's not like you're equating men's threatening leering glances at you with what sophie is doing and sophie is definitely not doing that but i think lee's intention is actually just to say like no i don't have a problem with you i so you can push back on this if you want but for me i i read it more as all men i mean m- sorry straight men would obviously be attracted to me because they can be because they are attracted to women mm-hmm. you are in that same ballpark because you're a woman who's attracted to women so as people who are attracted to women i'm not threatened by them why would i be threatened by you even if you're not specifically attracted to me. Right. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think I just don't love the insinuation, like the comparison. I don't right. think that they're equal, but I don't think Lee means it to be the way that I've taken it. Like, I think I'm misreading it from a contemporary point of view. But but you're right, though. I mean, again, it doesn't help that, again, with the exception of Paul, every single man we've seen in this movie has been, like, trying oh, to hit on Lee. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> So Sophie ends up leaving to go on a date. We never see the other woman, but I mean, Sophie looks like Adrian Barbeau, so I can only assume that she's uh, going to be pulling some hottie. <laughs> and Lee is presented with a anonymous bottle of wine. And I love, I, I didn't look up to see who plays this waitress if she's done any other acting, but her delivery of just a man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you nailed it, sweetie. You got into seg with that line delivery. <laughs> but see, she's also like not bothered by it because she's like, yeah, this is, men just do this for women in the 70s. Yeah, people just <laughs> buy drinks for other and sure, people buy drinks for other people. But I'm just like, that is a full fucking bottle of wine that you're delivering to one woman. And then the man is gone. That's weird. That's it was weird. so funny because she was like 1971. And I was like, oh, my God, that's a really good bottle of wine. It's so old. Like, oh, wait, this is 1978. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, it's age seven years. It's classy. (laughs) So Lee goes home. She receives another alarming call. And this time she does decide to report it to the police and they cannot do anything. So she has this fantastic fucking line. Well, if he kills me, you'll be the first to know. Love it. So she says this, the lights flicker and we fade to black. And then we... Oh, this, by the way, this light's flickering. Um, mm-hmm. This is when we get the Halloween. It's actually not at the climax. I'm sorry. It's here where we just, because uh, we as the audience know he has been in this house and she yep. does not. Nope. So I love, again, we have Carpenter to just, it, it just cuts. Like We just have a shot of a room as the lights go on and off. Then we mm-hmm. cut and we see another room, lights on and off. And it's just this, is he here or is he not? This is creating all the the horror in the film. Yeah, I wish that Lee reacted to it a little bit more. It almost seems like, She's looking at the lights and thinking, oh, is that faulty wiring? Hmm, maybe I should get that looked at. <laughs> what a strange light phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it must just be an L.A. thing. <laughs> we don't have these light, fancy lights in New York. Oh, oh actually, no, because the, 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 the hotel is operated on a computer system. They established yes. that early in the film. Oh, my God. I honestly thought of, like, the smart technology from Gremlins, too. <laughs> no, I, exactly. Yeah, because I, I was like, is this a real thing that was happening in the 70s? Or did John Carpenter invent this computerized apartment building? 
I mean, I feel like it's a sign of the times. We mentioned Looker earlier, and they've got wonky ideas about what technology can do in terms of, like, yeah, paralyzing and stunning people and making them go into a fugue state. Like, I think we just thought technology was amazing at this time, and it was going to be, like, really changing our lives in every facet of our being. I mean, like, what, 10 years before this, maybe 20 years before this, you had the Jetsons that were like, oh, in the year 2030, whatever, we're going to be flying cars around. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? Like, a fine bottle of 71 wine in like eight years we're going to be flying like the jetsons trace it's gonna be so exciting yes (laughs) okay so we touch base with lee sometime later and she basically says you know i've tried to do all these things i've changed my phone number it's unlisted and yet the calls keep coming and the police are like man i still can't do anything we haven't met anybody but this is on the phone so she comes home And uh, she gets a note that has indicated the president of Excursions Unlimited is waiting for her in the garage. And you can tell at this point Lee has had just about enough of this shit. So she grabs a letter opener and she heads down to the garage. We do see a man lurking behind a car. She does not see this person. Yeah, I love And she ends up going into the laundry room. And there's a lot of tension in the way that this hallway goes around a corner, but we Mm -hmm. can't see what's around the corner. And then we can't see if there's somebody in the laundry room. She gets startled. She drops the knife. She has to hide in a grate. The person drops a cigarette on her. The, uh, the, the, The only... My suspension of disbelief does not last for this because mm-hmm. she she has to pull the thing the grate off and yeah. you know go down and get her letter opener, and she hears footsteps, meaning he mm-hmm. is nearby, and right. she just scrapes this thing across the concrete. Oh sure, I'm like that would have caused so much noise. Literally, <laughs> if if he was anywhere near her, which he was, he would know she was under that grate. Which but but that leads me to believe that. He actually probably knew she was under there because we don't see him look down whenever mm-hmm. he drops his cigarette down there. And I'm sorry, as someone who has smoked cigarettes before, you look down when you throw your cigarette down something. Oh, sure. And this is high suspension of disbelief because yeah. this grate is human size. It is conveniently on the floor. She can lift it. She can move it back into place. The whole thing doesn't really make sense as a set piece, but... It's effective. I kind of liked it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a minor gripe at the end of the day. It's like, whatever, but... <laughs> yeah, you're stands. just like, logistically, it's not quite accurate. No. So she ends up running into some man. Uh, she's coming out of the laundry room. It's another, you know, kind of casual jump scare. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And then she goes back upstairs, and we see that there's another letter on the door from Excursions Unlimited being like, sorry, we missed you. And it's just like, oh, fucker, you are playing with me. Well, I wonder, I think, what was his end game, right? Like, because was he ever, he was never intending to actually come face to face with her, right? Oh, no. I okay. think he wanted to see what she was capable of. Would she go into the basement? Would she come armed? You know, uh, like he's sussing her out. He's trying to figure out how she's going to react to things. Yeah, that makes sense. It's all a power play, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Paul comforts her and then uh, they go off and they have some sexy sex because, you know, when your life is almost in danger, you're like, I'm going to live. I'm going to let this dude fuck me. But I do love this, though, because obviously we don't see them fuck, but she is the one leading him to the bedroom. Mm hmm. And we can tell because we're seeing this through the telescope's lens. Yeah. Because every fucking window is wide open. <laughs> she doesn't have drapes yet. She, okay, I, I'm also like, I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. I don't like waking up 
to sun. No. I mean, unless it, I'm sorry. If it's the weekend, like, cool, yeah, like, let me naturally wake up with the nice sun glow. But mm-hmm. if I'm, like, like, no, I get drapes immediately. I don't want the sun hitting me as soon as I, like, before I can even, like, get a chance to wake up. I'm sorry. And so the fact that she doesn't have drapes at all in this apartment mm-hmm. yet is really <laughs> dumb to me. I know. I, I nearly went at a rabbit hole being like, were drapes not a thing in the late <laughs> 70s? Did people not have them? Were they brand new? Drapes have at least been a thing since The Sound of Music, because that bitch made dresses out of drapes. <laughs> Maybe that's why she didn't have them, because she made all of her dresses were made from the drapes. <laughs> Hello, she's a fashion designer. <laughs> Paul thinks so. Uh, yeah. Okay, so Paul stays the night, and then he gets up and leaves in the morning, and then this is when she gets the call that's basically like... I can see you and I've been seeing everything because he's like, hey, I like your robe. I like it better when it's off. And she's just like, what? Shit. (laughs) So she has a a bit of a breakdown in the bathroom. Yeah. And yeah, this is this is the first time in the movie, which is, by the way, at the hour mark that Mm -hmm. she realizes he can see her. Yeah, she's really good at the in-person stuff and the anonymous stalking stuff. She's not quite as quick on the uptake. Yeah. So I do like this, though. So she feels like she's under threat, and that means that she is not alone in the apartment for the rest of the film. Yeah, and now she puts drapes up. She does put drapes. Paul and Sophie help her. Uh, Sophie is looking through the telescope. This is a really fascinating scene to me. So Mm -hmm. Paul and Sophie are both talking about her situation, and their language is very unique. So Paul says that the stalker is trying to hurt Lee without touching her. And Mm -hmm. when we get to the definition of stalking in a moment, we'll see that that's actually part of it. But then Sophie explicitly uses the word rape. And I'm like, that is such an important gender distinction. Yeah, yeah. Because basically, she's like, she's a bit perplexed because she doesn't know why Lee doesn't want to know who the guy is. So Sophie is on your side, Joe. Mm-hmm. But she but basically when when Lee gives her this look, she just goes, oh, you're probably right. Who wants to know their own rapist? Rape is when a man consciously keeps a woman in fear. <sighs> Which mm-hmm. is, if you think about it, also what stalking is. Well, and again, John Carpenter wrote that line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I I love that we're literally including this conversation in here because I do think it's really important. And again, we'll we'll contextualize that in just a a couple of minutes. Yeah. So uh, she does get another phone call that indicates Excursions Unlimited is going to begin the removal process. And I love (laughs) that language because it's so nefarious and yet also, you know, extremely open to interpretation. Like maybe they're going to take her couch. Maybe they're going to shred all of her paperwork. Or they could be killing her best friend. I was about to be like, God, I wonder what a remake of this would look like in today's world. Oh, wait, we just talked about it. Watch her. (laughs) (laughs) Now available on Patreon. Go listen. (laughs) Okay, so they decide after this phone call, that word is, I mean, frankly, triggering. So they go down to the precinct and they meet with Detective Gary Hunt, who is played by Charles Cipher. And he basically... He's useless. He's completely useless. Yeah, he can't do anything because the Watcher has not broken any laws. Yeah, so Trace, let's talk about stalking as a law. Yeah, let's let, let's go into this. I, I'm, I'm minorly versed in it, but please, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> okay, so we've been talking for like a solid 70 minutes and change, mm-hmm. and let's just do a quick definition of stalking, because uh, as you mentioned, you know, we talked about this in Creep a little bit, but I don't mm-hmm. really think we spent a lot of time talking uh, about where the genesis of this came from. Yeah. So 
Stalking, in case you were wondering, is unwanted and or repeated surveillance by an individual or group towards another person, and they are interrelated to harassment and intimidation, but they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they may include following the victim in person or just monitoring them. So that's kind of where Paul's definition comes into play, right? Right. It's like he's, he's trying to hurt you without actually touching you, and that's what the definition of stalking truly is. Mm-hmm. So this is also interesting. I I went this one. I did go down the rabbit hole for because oh, I thought it was Lord. interesting. <laughs> so there's different types of stalkers, Trace. Mm-hmm. So there's a rejected stalker, and this is someone who is trying to reverse, correct, or avoid a rejection, i.e., often in divorce or separation or termination and that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's resentful stalkers. These people make a vendetta because there's a sense of grievance against the victim so they're trying to frighten or cause distress in them as a result there is intimacy seekers these are people who are looking to establish a intimate loving relationship with their victims so they believe that the person is their soulmate or that they were meant to be together so like mm. when we talked about valentine for I'm, the I'm, horror I'm, book club <laughs> i was about to be like oh like valentine <laughs> yeah or valentine the film to be honest also that right uh, yeah Two more, we have incompetent suitors who have poor social or courting skills, and they have a fixation, or in some cases, a sense of entitlement about an intimate relationship, even though the person may not be interested in them. Ooh, that was mine. That was mine. (laughs) Yes. So in this case, the victims are often already in a dating relationship with someone else. So yes, that is your situation. There you go. And then the final one, and the one that I would suggest we are seeing in Someone's Watching Me exclamation mark are predatory (laughs) stalkers so these people spy on the victim in order to prepare and plan an attack often sexual on the victim Mm. but okay so in this case though lee can't do anything about it Mm -hmm. because he hasn't he hasn't actually done anything to her although here's the thing Mm -hmm. if she had found this bug earlier that to me is like cool he is broken and entered in my house yeah yeah you could probably get him for the b&e but because he has only made phone calls and sent her letters and he hasn't technically said like i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna hurt you even they can't do anything and part of the reason for that too is because stalking is not a crime in 1978 And it won't be for a long time. Mm -hmm. It would take 12 more years until California would be the first state to criminalize stalking. And most of the other states would follow suit. But interestingly enough, there was also there's been a couple of updates to that statute and sort of like amendments and other laws. One that I found was interesting was the Violence Against Women Act of 2005. And they defined stalking as engaging in a course of conduct directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to a fear for his or her safety or the safety of others. So that's like far more broadly inclusive, right? And interesting Mm -hmm. gendered language. And then B, suffer substantial emotional distress. So it doesn't even have to be that they want to hurt you physically or sexually. It's that if they are causing you emotional distress by the stalking. So like your situation, Trace, where it was like, I'm getting emails from this person. They're fighting my job. They're reaching out to my job, things like that. Yeah. So that 
alone is now considered stalking and it is criminalized behavior oh good to know i didn't look that up when i was getting stalked i probably should have done that (laughs) although interestingly enough it's still defined as the violence against women act which i'm i think in part because we really introduced stalking as a result of a number of high profile cases against women and it was often perceived as only women will really be stalked so that's the thing though so because the thing that happened in 1990 um so federal law regarding the release of personal information through the DMV was changed uh, Uh because there were two very specific cases, and I'll just briefly touch on this, but one was in 1982, an actress named Teresa Saldana, who played Joe Pesci's character's wife in Martin Scorsese's Raging Raging Bull. Right. Her stalker hired a private investigator who obtained the unlisted phone number of of Saldana's mother, Mm -hmm. called her mother, posed as Scorsese's assistant, said he would needed her address to contact her about a film role. Yeah. And he does this, stabs her in broad daylight outside of her door with a hunting knife. Uh, His attack was so fierce that the blade bent. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, She was hospitalized with 10 stab wounds. She went uh, through a four-month hospital stay. But um, I I wanted to bring her up only because because we all handle trauma differently, right? Mm -hmm. Her role was to just tackle it head on. She became a very vocal advocate of anti-stalking laws. Oh, she survived. Oh, she survived, yes. She even relived the incident playing herself in the made-for-TV movie Victim for Victims, the Teresa Saldana story. So she actually relived her own stabbing, Mm -hmm. playing herself in this made-for-TV movie in the 80s. I have heard this story before, yeah. So that's, but she also did it again, there's an episode of a TV show called Hunter, where she also, like, reenacted this, her, her attack. My God, so brave. Holy shit. Unluckily, though, so in 1989, this is the big one. We have Rebecca Schaefer, who, um... She was an actress. Uh, her stalker had been going after her for three years. Uh, he eventually gave up after a while. Uh, then he saw her in the black comedy Scenes from a Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, in which she appeared in bed with another actor. This enraged her stalker, apparently out of jealousy. Uh, he thought that she should be punished for becoming another Hollywood whore. Oh, and... He learned about the Teresa Saldana stabbing and how the man had l- uh, used a private investigator to obtain oh, her no. address. Because again, that's 82, this is 89, we still don't have these laws in effect. Mm -hmm. So he paid a detective agency in Tucson $250 to get Schaefer's home address from the Department of Motor Vehicle Records. Can you imagine just like a public office giving out your private information so someone can come and fucking kill you? Oh, and that's exactly what he did. He 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 went to her. Uh, he roamed the neighborhood where she lived, asked people if she actually lived in this house. And once he was certain that the house where he was was her address, he rang the doorbell. She answered. He pulls a handgun, shoots her in the chest at point blank range. She dies in the hospital. Oh, man. This guy, by the way, so he, he confesses immediately. And the prosecutor in his case was none other than Marsha Clark. What? I know! <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at the case. This is terrible. But um, everyone, of course, Marsha Clark is the prosecuting attorney in the O.J. Simpson trial. Wow. So many weird connections. I know. But yeah, so we get this Driver's Privacy Protection Act, so you can no longer go through the DMD to get people's addresses. And um, yeah, then it eventually helped pass the 1990 passing of America's first anti-stalking law in California, Penal Code 646.9, which you've already alluded to. So basically, in 1978, when this film is taking place... 
Lee can catalog all the stuff. She can do everything that they're telling her to do, but it's technically not illegal and they have nothing that they can charge this person for. It's so fucking frustrating. Yeah. And to me, it confirms how scary it is when you know that you're in danger, when you know somebody is doing something to you and just the sheer powerlessness because you would say, oh, well, this is what the cops are for. Someone is going to protect me. And this person's like, nah, sorry, can't do anything for you. Yep. I liken it to, um, because <laughs> it's like a thing where it's like, also even later, when they think they've caught the guy, and she's like, mm-hmm. okay, cool, I'm probably safe. I liken it to having bedbugs or scabies, because you <laughs> <My> never... <laughs> never truly rid of them. <laughs> but, but as someone who has had scabies and bedbugs, and I promise I'm a clean person, having either one of these things does not denote cleanliness. Oh, um, as someone who also had bedbugs, I will co-sign on that. It is not a poor hygiene symptom. Exactly. But it's a thing where you know, they come and they treat it. And they can either, you know, do uh, heat or they do uh, chemicals. Mm-hmm. But it's like you have to wait. Yeah. Because it's never a for sure thing that they're going to get all of them. And you have to just no. wait and sleep in your bed and mm-hmm. hope that you don't wake up with bites the next morning. And it is a really mentally taxing experience. And so. Yep. It's the same thing with this, where I'm like, oh my God, like you just don't know. I mean, you're, you, you constantly think you're being watched. It's so stressful. So what you're saying is that if they remade Someone's Watching Me, exclamation mark, it would be instead of a killer, she has bedbugs. Oh my god, but carnivorous bedbugs. Oh my god. And they're giant. Yes! Oh my god. (laughs) It's like ticks. (laughs) So Lee does what any rational person would do when the cops tell them, hey, we can't do a fucking thing for you. She goes drinking. You know what? Good for her. Good for her. Yeah. This is kind of the last moment of levity that we'll get in the film. So they do go back to the apartment because Lee says she will not be chased out of her own house, which even as I'm frustrated with some of the decisions that she makes, it's moments like these where I think, nope, I still really like it, lady. You're yeah. you're solid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we get the reiteration that, yeah, Sophie is moving to Fort Worth very soon, by the way. She's mm-hmm. not she's not going to wait this out with no. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> I really like you, but I need to get to lesbian hot zone, Fort Worth. Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we get another phone call, which confirms that the dude is still out there and he can see the drapes. So we know that he is within sight. So Sophie goes into investigation mode. She uses the telescope that Lee has and she spots somebody else. And it happens to be this dude from the laundry room that we got the jump scare with. Yep. So he is immediately arrested, he is interrogated, he is a part-time electrician with keys to her building, so those flickering lights and that open door, everything's coming up this dude. And unfortunately, uh, in case you couldn't tell, he's not the guy. He is not the dude, but he is sent off to... Oh. Des Moines? <laughs> Des Moines, Iowa. Also lesbian hot zone? We don't I, know. I, I, but here's the thing. They caught the guy. Mm-hmm. They pressured him out of town. They got him fired. Yeah. Lost his job, lost his pension, mm-hmm. and now he's living in Des Moines, which I'm assuming is his hometown, but it's like this guy's life is ruined. It's which over. Is really interesting though, right? Because in in this post Me Too era we live in, isn't this the thing that all the guys always complain about? <laughs> Where oh it's my like, god, well, he got canceled. Yes, exactly. Which I mean, again, to an extent, it's like, yeah, this was unfortunate. Just because we learned that the watcher was also kind of framing this guy. I think, oh, like for setting sure. him up. Yeah, yeah. Hence the flickering lights. Unfortunately, I mean, like, like, all evidence did point to this man, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much a, oh, shit, you are a perfect scapegoat, sir. And also now you live in Des Moines. Oh, God, poor guy. Iowa. I've never been to Iowa, but 
Iowa. <laughs> hey, Terry lives in Iowa. Be nice. I thought, oh, did he move back? I thought he lived in Kansas. Yeah, he lives in Iowa. Wait, okay, but does he like Iowa? Sure. <laughs> Terry, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thinking that her stalker has been apprehended, we get, uh, sorry, this is the last moment of levity. Uh, yeah. It, it's all, like, I could see a song and dance number in this part. She is throwing up on those drapes. She is living large. She's letting the sun into this apartment. And then she gets a new letter, and it says that the removal process will begin immediately. Oh, my God. Uh. And so we bring Detective Hunt back in. He thinks that it's nothing, and she doesn't buy that for a second. So she starts spying on the neighbors with the telescope. Yeah. We also, we haven't mentioned it because, I mean, but it happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Carpenter loves shooting, like, this building from the ground level as it it's almost like vertigo inducing where we just see mm -hmm. how like how tall this building is yeah and i like you know because i i live in a tall condo building and one of the things that really became apparent during the pandemic when we were sort of all just stuck living inside and spying on each other frankly mm -hmm. you can see so much of other people's lives just by virtue of your proximity to them when you live in the downtown core like I can see fully into my neighbors like bedrooms. I can see them when they turn on lights. I've seen them making food, dancing, exercising. And I don't know who any of these people are. So the idea that you add a telescope into that. Yeah. Like really, you're you're able to follow somebody's entire life as long as they don't have drapes up. Oh, my God. See, I, I, that, and you're not tempted? Uh, I'll be honest. I I have thought about getting a telescope because... <laughs> He's like, I got my telescope right here. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are iPhones not like miniature telescopes with the camera lens that they have nowadays? But Valid point. <laughs> I was about to like come back. You're like, no, actually, you're kind of right. <laughs> Here's the thing. I had a brief fixation with a neighbor of mine whose name I didn't know. And Brian and I constructed a full, like, fictitious relationship that these two people had we named him nathan we saw them have sex once and it was very embarrassing for everyone because they saw us see them because <gasps> he walks into the bedroom dick swinging and then we're like oh my god we're on the balcony we can see you dude and we just see him immediately flick the light off like shit people were seeing that oh my god see he should have been like more of an exhibitionist and been like all right enjoy the show fuckers <laughs> Anyway, they moved and it was very sad. Oh my god. What, what what is there's a movie where like it's two people are like they're people watching, but they give dialogue to the people based on their body language. So they're are you like talking you know, about the voyeurs. Because no, yes. but maybe but I haven't seen it, but if it happens in that movie, then sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Justice Smith, Sydney Sweeney, sex, good shit. It's really bad, but also really great. Everybody. Don't worry, now that I finished my euphoria catch up, I will now go watch the voyeurs. Well, yeah, because you get to see her tits in that one again. Her enormous tits that are just... Let, okay, let's move on. <laughs> I just want roles for her that doesn't involve her having to take her top off. Because I'm like, she's really talented, but also she just doesn't have to do nudity for everything. The White Lotus, there you go. There we go. Okay, so Lee does spot a man with a telescope in the penthouse, and she spirals. So mm -hmm. she calls Sophie in. Sophie has not left for... Lesbian hotspot, Fort Worth yet. <laughs> she has walkie-talkies. So she's like, Sophie, you take this walkie-talkie. I'm going to go investigate. So 
She goes into the other building. She goes up to the penthouse floor. She flips the breakers to get in the mood. <laughs> Love that line. And then she breaks into this dude's apartment and she finds recording equipment and a log of all the times that she has been called. So this yeah. is definitely the stalker. And then she gets to watch as Sophie is murdered via the telescope. So, the, unfortunately, as much as I hate to, like, call this the barrier gaze trope, unfortunately, that mm -hmm. is what this is. It is, 100%. It is the only character who is not the killer who is mm -hmm. killed in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it sucks because, I, I, you know, they can't kill Paul because he has to maybe save her, which luckily that, that doesn't happen. Actually, I'm sorry, that's not what happened, so they why can't they him. kill Paul? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They, we don't kill any of her male suitors, which, again, I'm a little surprised at, right? Like, why doesn't the killer – he sees them hitting on her, but I guess maybe because she never gives them the time of day, so they're never a threat to him. To him. Yeah, to me, this would have been the perfect opportunity to kill Steve. Like, Sophie's already gone to Fort Worth, so Steve yeah. offers to come and help her out, and then he gets murdered because the killer thinks that Steve is fucking her. Wait, Steve or Paul? Steve, because we never see Steve again, right? Yeah, after after the call, when she does the, now you know what time it is, we never mm -hmm. hear from Steve again. I think in a contemporary film, he would continue to be more of a main character and he would be killed. Honestly, like, if, if Sophie were more of a stereotypical, like, portrayal of a lesbian, I would be less bothered by the barrier gaze trope, because I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. cool, that's what this is. But because Carpenter has treated this character with so much care... It almost, I mean, it doesn't undo it, but it's, it's, re it makes it more disappointing that this is the end for this character. A hundred percent. And it, I think the reason that she is killed from like a narrative character based point of view is because she is the person that Lee is actually closest to. Like, yeah. killing Paul would make sense, but yeah, we need the promise of heterosexual romance at the end of the movie. Blah, yeah. but whatever. This is a movie for presumably straight housewives so it makes sense to then kill the person who is next nearest and dearest in lee's heart and unfortunately that's sophie yeah and so yeah i don't think there's any intentional malice on carpenter's part of like oh we're killing her because she's a lesbian mm -hmm. it's just unfortunate like yeah like looking at this you know 40 plus years later it's kind of like uh... yeah <laughs> it sucks it fully yeah. sucks and honestly i i would be less disappointed if other people had also been murdered but it's like one death in yeah. this entire movie yeah sophie come on it's the lesbian yeah exactly so it, it's a give and take we get this amazing portrayal of, of a lesbian in 1978 nbc tv movie mm -hmm. but she also gets killed <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah yep 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 so Obviously, Lee freaks out uh, when she goes back to the apartment, though the body isn't there and the police can't find her. They just default assume that she has gone to Fort Worth, which to me is also I know that this is not the intention, but to me, that's extra damning in a kind of interesting way where it's like, oh, well, this lesbian's just disappeared. We presume she's gone to Fort Worth. We're not <laughs> even going to bother all the time. <laughs> Honestly, right? It's like, well, we're not believing women and also we don't care about queer people. It's like Valentine when they're like, oh, that blonde girl went to... Went to she went to LA. <laughs> went to LA. Or, 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 or that same actress in Urban Legends Final Cut. Oh, mm -hmm. she went to wherever. Yep. <laughs> she, she had an ER audition in New York. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's interesting? No one has seen that actress again. So maybe she is dead. <laughs> Was it Joshua Jackson in uh, Urban Legend? Oh, yeah, he's going on a ski trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Classic, classic trope. 
So, uh, interestingly enough, the penthouse has also been cleaned. So the recording equipment, the logbook, all that kind of stuff has been removed. And it's like, oh no, this J.D. Nichols person, he's been traveling. So it couldn't have been him. So uh, just to add like an extra little twist to the knife, at home, Lee also discovers a message written in the bathroom that says, no one believes you. But it's from condensation from the shower. So, of course, that's not proof. Yeah, it's it's the what lies beneath, you know. <laughs> oh, see, I was actually thinking the end of I know what you did last summer. Oh yeah, no valid point. <laughs> well, as many words like you know, you know what? You know what? <laughs> what am I supposed to know, you stupid ghost? <laughs> <laughs> Spell it out. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> So at this point, Lee has just about had enough. So she ends up kind of collapsing on the table in a daze. And at this point, she sees the microphone has been under there. So she knew she was being watched, but she didn't know that they had sound. And now she knows the whole thing. It's really weird, though. This is this is shot very weird because she she gets upset and mm-hmm. she just grabs the desk and yeah. pulls it towards her instead yeah. of throwing it up like away <laughs> from her. It's very much like, well, if I'm going to go down, I'm taking this desk with me. Well, and so, yeah, it just like falls on her. And it's like, girl, you're trapped under this desk now. But yes, thank God she sees the recording device. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she's now properly freaked out. So she barrels out into the hall. She's briefly trapped in the elevator. This doesn't come to anything, but I still like it visually. Well, it's claustrophobic because, I mean, at this point, like, her home is supposed to be a safe space for her, right? As you've Mm -hmm. already noted, the apartment is very large and spacious. Yeah. So as the film goes on, the apartment becomes less of a safe space for her. And you can actually see it. If you clock the film, every time she walks into the apartment, she looks a bit more on edge each mm-hmm. time and, and Hutton channels those those very well like subtly as you go from scene to scene but then yeah in this elevator it's like oh you don't have an open space anymore you are trapped in here in this tiny space which is also representative of the apartment you call home and it's also a final reminder hey the technology component is important here like yes. it's somebody who's tech savvy who knows how to control this building because how did he trap you in this elevator unless he has the means to access it this fucking computerized apartment complex <laughs> indeed yeah So uh, Paul wonders just that. He's like, how could this person control two different apartment buildings? So this leads them to investigate the control man, Herbert Stiles, who will be played by George Scaff, I guess. We barely see this person. Like, it could just be a man in the dark, for all we know. I I think we see his face once in the very end of the movie. Maybe. Like, if I had to pick him out of a lineup, it'd be a (laughs) no-go. No, couldn't tell you. All right, so we're nearly done. Lee breaks into his home. She finds uh, specs on all the microphones, empty excursion, unlimited letterhead. She calls Paul to say, hey, this is what I've discovered. I'm coming home. And when she gets there, oh, this creeped me out so much. She finds a fake suicide note. So she's like, oh, shit, this dude's going to kill me now. It's because well, we, we we found out like he, all of the girls, the four girls he's been with previously. I'm sorry that he's talked previously. They all died by suicide. It's like, OK, mm-hmm. but, you know, he killed them when he was done with them. <laughs> yep, And that's exactly what happened. So this apartment is dark and she is just attacked and she is nearly thrown out the window. And I love the way that this is shot. We are getting overhead shot looking straight down towards the ground. Yeah. As Lee's 
I'm going to say nearly full body is being pushed out and she is just kind of like grabbing onto whatever she can to stay inside. Yeah, I, I, I love this. Also, this whole scene when she runs in, she's like rushing around, like looking for us. Like, she's trying to find mm-hmm. him. She knows he's there. Yeah, it, this is all we're getting POV shots from her. And I think this also is what Carpenter borrowed for the opening of Halloween when we have young Michael's POV as he walks uh, around the house. Okay. Because we have a shot where she's. Again, she's looking around, she's trying to find something, and she like, kind of grabs for, I want to say a weapon, maybe? Mm-hmm. But it's it's done like that when Michael Myers grabs his first weapon. Right. Yeah. I love that she just calls him out, too, before he attacks her. She's like, uh-huh. all right. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Exactly. Um, but, oh, no, because the, the the shot, you know, she, she takes the chair, she breaks the window, mm-hmm. and she reaches it up again. Did it not remind you of Wait Until Dark? Yeah, 100%. As soon as she walked in and it was dark and there was no lights to be turned on, I was like, oh, shit, here we go again. Yeah, it's it's not as effective of a jump scare, but it's still really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, folks, if you want to hear us break that down, first, I feel like we talk about it a lot in our Hush episode because we're talking about, like, women with disabilities trying to struggle against people in the dark. Yeah, you know, I've been because my husband's never seen that movie and I've been wanting to rewatch it. We should just program that even though I don't think it's queer outside of the fact that it's Audrey. Audrey Hepburn. Right. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> it's like that and Mimic. Keep adding them to the list. Oh, my God. Honestly, though, we should cover Charade one day. I've never seen it. <gasps> oh, oh, my God, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Charade is like one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Okay. Uh... I'm on the list. So, yeah. So, we're basically done. Yeah. Uh, so, she... We get to see repeated shots. There's one piece of glass left in the window. So as she's being shoved out, she's trying to grab it. And she finally succeeds. And she just gets this guy fully in the back. It's really good. And then he falls to his death. Well, he tries to charge at her. And she just kind of sidesteps him and then gives him like a little push. Like, here you go. I'll help you on your way out. And unfortunately, I mean, the movie's over. And the movie I, I, is over. I was like, wait, did I miss something? Is there? No, nope. nope, we're just done. Credits. No, nope. it, it, it's not an uncommon trait with movies of the time, right? Like, killer's dead, boom, roll oh, credits. Sure. Yeah. But they just, again, in a movie like this, it's tackling these feminist themes and, like, you know, what it means to be a woman in the modern day, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of upsetting that we don't get any more catharsis from her. Because, again, her best friend is dead. And, yeah, she's killed this guy. But, like, what about her life? Right. And wouldn't it have been satisfying to have detectives? Detective Hunt have to reconcile with the fact that he hung this woman out to dry and she had yes. to deal with it all herself. Yes. I mean, that. Uh, trust me, like, when it comes to revenge, I'm always, or, or look, if I'm going to kill someone for revenge or whatever reason, I want the, I don't want to surprise and kill them, you know? I want to, I want them to know that they're A, about to get killed, and then mm-hmm. it's me, the one doing the killing. And <laughs> so many movies don't use that. And I'm like, that's the catharsis. Like, why do I want to kill someone and have them not know that I'm killing them? That's so stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that you're just very publicly declaring <laughs> to thousands of people this is how you're going to do it. The fact that, yeah, that's the thing, right? If I kill someone, you're going to know that I did it because right. I'm going to make it very well known that I did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then he's going to pin it on an electrician and that person's going to get sent to Des Moines. What is Killville like? I want you to know that they know. I want they. I want them to know that I want them to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love it. Oh, we should do Kill Bill, too. That is someone's watching me! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Final thoughts, Joe? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think as we said off the top, this isn't like the best movie that I've ever no. seen. It is very clearly a made-for-TV movie. It doesn't have all the kinds of bells and whistles that you're going to see with a larger production. But I think Lee is such a fascinating character. Sophie is 
fucking amazing. And we haven't really said it's Adrian Barbeau. So yeah, she's stunning. She's got the voice. She's just oozing charisma. Like I wanted so, so much more of Sophie in this movie. Yeah. And I just think the pair of them are really fun. And yeah, it's early John Carpenter. Like this is our first John Carpenter in the pod trace. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> But it's because he I, doesn't do queer shit. Yeah, but yeah, we'll do some fun ones because you know I would. You know what? Big Trouble in Little China. That has Kim Cattrall. We'll call that queer. There we go. We could probably do Ghosts of Mars since it is so female centric as well. But that movie's not great. I I would maybe the sets in that movie look like they're out of a John Waters film or a high school theater production. So you know what? It might be camp. <laughs> That is so rude. I listened to the movie Oubliette episode on it, and the way that they created the actual, like, Mars parts is, like, epic. Well, it doesn't look that way. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say the sets. I just said the Mars parts. (laughs) It doesn't look good. (laughs) I have seen that movie twice, okay? You cannot convince me it's good. (laughs) So rude. I will follow Uh... Natasha Headstrich anywhere. Oh my god, I know, I know. Uh, I mean, what, we can do Kirstie Alley and Village of the Damned, we can do... Actually, Village of the Damned is, is probably the best one. Yeah, it's probably the best one, which it's really sad, because it's not that great of a movie. No. Anyway, um, no, I, I'm going to agree with you. I, I really like this movie. I think I'm a bit stronger on it than you. This is a three and a half out of five for me, but okay. a lot of that just comes from, I just really am impressed mm-hmm. with how progressive so much of this is, which may be cutting it a bit too much slack, but you know what? I'm fine with that. It's a movie. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers, or you can shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered, or go to our YouTube channel to watch us have interviews with uh, different horror filmmakers, queer horror filmmakers sometimes, and of course, our monthly hangouts, where we talk with our journalistic peers about a random topic every month. Mm-hmm. If you want to chat with other listeners, go join our Facebook Horror Queers group, because we've got a pretty good following there. And if you have a moment, please... Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We do love a good review on Apple Podcasts, though, so do that. Can we get a little bit of momentum going on there? Unfortunately for you, Joe, you only see the reviews that come in Canada. In that case, Canadians. Yes, lacking. It's okay. We've been light on the U.S. side, too. So United States of Americans, do that. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? All of you people in Des Moines and Fort Worth, we gave you plenty (laughs) of shoutouts in this episode. The least you can do. Oh my god, yes. Do that, Des Moinesians and Fort Worthians. And if you would like even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are in August, so if you subscribe today, you will get all this and more. We've got episodes on Netflix's Resident Evil TV series prequel thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Predator prequel movie thing, yep. Prey. <laughs> They slash them, the queer horror film on Peacock, Bodies, 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 the queer A24 whodunit film, and a 25th anniversary audio commentary on Paul W.S. Anderson's Event Horizon. And I don't know if it's queer, but maybe we'll make it that way. I don't care if nothing's queer about it because that movie is everything. I'm excited to revisit it, though, because I've only seen it once and I liked it, but I definitely like wasn't... People love that movie, so I'm, I'm excited movie. to give this a revisit with some fresh eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Joe, mm-hmm. what are we talking about next week? 
Well, this is exciting. We're going Orca Queer, and we're revisiting Clive Barker Trace, so I think maybe a very, very small handful of people will have already heard this episode, because it was our live Fright Down video that we did with Lee Monson, but yeah, we're going to be talking about Nightbreed. Uh, yes. All right, everyone. There's a lot of different cuts of that, but honestly, just Watch whatever one you want to watch, and we'll talk. We'll, we'll go through everything. <laughs> yeah, I think we watched the director's cut because that's the best of the most accessible ones. But also, it's very funny. I thought you were suggesting there's multiple cuts of that episode, and it's true because we do get a little bit, by which I mean a lot, drunk by the end of that episode. Oh, fuck yeah, yeah, we do. Honestly, if we haven't done a drunk episode in a very long time for many reasons. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you'll, you'll hear us slowly de- degrade in mental faculties as that episode goes on. <laughs> yeah, more so than usual. It's a good time. More so than usual. But until then, y'all, we can cross out, someone's watching me! Someone's watching me! And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.